sermon text this morning is found in Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13, and we'll read all the way through the end of chapter 53, which only has 12 verses. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 12. Isaiah 52, 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word. As Easter Sunday is uh, usually we have guests among us and for whom we are very thankful for those guests let me take the first minute here of the message to briefly bring you up to speed that you've come in on a series so if you've had no background to this that's okay I want to bring you a little bit up to speed with why we're in this particular passage why we're taking last month and this month as a church to look at this prophet from the Old Testament named Isaiah a prophet who Jesus and the Apostle Paul 
obviously significant New Testament figures, uh, quoted the Old Testament prophet Isaiah quite a lot. The larger study our church is in right now, we started it in January of last year and are going to finish it up this summer, is the book of Romans. That's in the New Testament, if you're not familiar with Scripture. Paul wrote that book. And we've been taking the large book of Romans in sections. We've split it into five sections, in fact, 16 chapters. And the fourth section that we just went through in January and February was uh, Romans chapters 9 through 11, in which Paul happens to quote Isaiah quite a bit. So I thought that March and April would be a good time for us to get more familiar with uh, what we're calling here the gospel according to Isaiah. We're going to return to Romans next month on through the summer, the last section of that study. But today we take this last servant song in Isaiah. What you've turned to in this little, this is where chapter and number divisions don't help us. Uh, it'd be nice if this was all chapter 53, but you got this little section of chapter 52, and then you go into chapter 53. And what this is, where you've turned, is this is a, a, a called a servant song. There are four of these in the book of Isaiah. The first one of these we looked at two weeks ago in here. That was in Isaiah 42. The second and third servant songs we're not looking at. Those are in Isaiah 49 and 50 respectively. And then you come to the fourth and final servant song. And it's here in Isaiah 52 and 53. And all four servant tracks in Isaiah introduce us to who Jesus would be. And how we know these are servant songs is because they're, they're, they're sort of begun on the same note. Look there at chapter 52 verse 13. Behold my servant. They all start this way. My servant, one whose servitude was not uh, conscripted or forced upon him, but chosen. Which is remarkable regarding Jesus because it's clear from the four servant songs as Isaiah presents this one who was coming. Who then in the New Testament says prophets like Isaiah were, were searching with the greatest care to find out how it would be that this one they're talking about would both suffer and reign. It was a puzzle to them. They got the reigning part. Everybody expected the Messiah of God, the chosen one, the anointed one to, to reign. But it was the idea of suffering that really threw the prophets off. And, and this particular servant song, it's really the most famous of the four. But you've got this servant as one that God would be at work in and through like no one else. Someone who would, in fact, link, would, would bridge the, the temporal and the, and the eternal Someone uniquely superlative in, in combining not just the best of human qualities, but, but uh, divine superlatives. And he calls himself a servant. It's just that's, that threw the prophets off. Who are, who are we talking about? And we know now in the Lord Jesus, often why Jesus quoted Isaiah to say, he was talking about me. No one could say what the servant songs say uh, uh, no, no one could say that about Israel. Uh, there is an interpretation. Judaism, in fact, offers the interpretation that who the servant songs are talking about is Israel. But, but Israel doesn't fit the profile. Jesus of Nazareth does. The profile of the servant is most striking here at the end of a little bit of uh, chapter 52 on through chapter 53. It's so striking. Let me point this out to you. Just as you're looking at the text 
just kind of get it as a big block on the page. Or if you're looking at it electronically, try to scroll out <laughs> and see the whole thing for a moment. Because um, you've got the first three verses of the song are the last three verses of chapter 52. Again, this is a little confusing in the way that uh, chapter verse divisions back in the Middle Ages when this was done didn't help us here. The first three verses of this song are the last three verses in Isaiah 52. And then the last three verses in the song, verses 10, 11, 12, and Isaiah 53, what's remarkable between the opening and the concluding of the song is everything that's in the middle is so offensive to our sense of how justice ought to work that what the opening and the closing of the song does is assures us this is the way God had it go. This was God's intention all along. The prophets weren't imagining things, uh, and, and it wasn't a case of God making you know, lemonade from lemons. This is the way it was going to happen. Look at verse 10, chapter 53, verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord, two times the will of the Lord mentioned here in verse 10. First line, last line, last line, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, just looking at verse 10 for a moment, just to start here, take this, you can take any verse out of this, a very famous passage in the Old Testament. How could the Lord will to crush him by way of crucifixion? This one in whom there is such divine delight, one who does the will of God flawlessly. How could the Lord will to crush him? Well, the verse tells us, verse 10 says, the offering for guilt required this. I mentioned Romans to you because one of the things we saw established in the New Testament book of Romans is that God not only wants to be just, but justifier. Well, that's a conundrum. How can you be just, that is punish sin, hold us accountable for our unrighteousness and our self-righteousness both, which is what sin is. How can you do that and yet justify, that is make the guilty person righteous, give to us the merits of Jesus. How does, he, how does he do that? Well, Jesus' death was a substitution. It was him putting himself in our place. All who sinned is all of us. That was required if God was going to be just and justifier. So we see in verse 10 the emphasis on offering for guilt, but also looking at verse 10, the last two lines here, the will of the Lord was also to raise him up. He wasn't just going to take the punishment. He was going to take the punishment and triumph over it. Look at the last two lines in verse 10. Most of your Bibles will have this in, in sort of uh, poetic, uh, so you get line by line. The last two lines in verse 10, He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Which means this servant, who serves at infinite cost to himself, who serves himself to death, as it were, he doesn't remain there. The song tells us he's going to die. It's said more than once. But then this song concludes on resurrection. Verse 10, verse 11, let's look at verse 11 again. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. 
and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's what a victor does. Because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the gospel according to Isaiah. All through the New Testament, the New Testament teachers and writers are coming back to this very passage and saying, Jesus is the only one this can be. So there it is. And he does that today, making intercession. The last line there in verse 12. His dying was not the end. His dying was the entrance for us into all the good that God has for us. Now, you know, if you pay attention culturally, you know what happens every time uh, Easter time rolls around. Uh, we're told there are other religions, there are other myths where gods die and return from death. Anybody can make up a story where their god beats the odds and does the impossible. And those available options, they're always swirling around. They come up with the tulips, you know, every, every Easter time. They get airplay. And, and skeptics make sure we want to re remember that those things are out there. And we can answer skeptics with a lot of things. You can talk to people about the, the good history, the historicity supporting the resurrection. You can talk to people about how Jesus is the only founder of a major world religion for which there are eyewitnesses of his uh, miracles and not, and not just from those who follow them. You can emphasize how he indicated that his resurrection would be the ultimate verification of his identity as God in flesh. And as I said when I welcomed you uh, earlier, everything hangs on resurrection. I, I'm not a Christian because I believe Jesus turned water into wine or because he walked on water. I mean, it would be hard to be a Christian and not believe those things. But I'm a Christian because I believe Jesus walked out of his tomb. Again, just to underscore this and emphasize it, Paul said, if this didn't happen, our faith is wasted. Wasted time, wasted energy, all of it. So what there is in this song, looking at this song, there's, uh, I'll put it this way, there's true truth, right? True truth supporting the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. Any denier of this needs to ensure that he or she has pieced through the evidence carefully. But in addition to true truth, that which passes historical muster holds up well to objective scrutiny. There's also the ring of truth. And that's where I'd like to focus us this morning because what we have before us is a song. It's not just our intellect that we use in belief and believing. Just like uh, it, there's an assumption out there uh, culturally that, that all knowledge is mathematical or scientific. And that's, that's not true. Uh, you know, prove to me mathematically that you love your mother. I mean, you're not going to resort to a whiteboard and algebraic formulations to tell me you love your mother. Uh, not all knowledge is, uh, needs be uh, mathematically or scientifically uh, verified. We want our beliefs to align to facts. In fact, biblical faith is, is I have good reason for believing the Bible is, is true and our beliefs about Jesus do align to fact. But there's also, when we take into account what we know and knowledge, there's also what we know of our longings, that we know we want beauty. How do we know that? 
that we know we want grace. How do we know that? The desire to access something greater than ourselves is is in us. How do we know that? Isaiah 53 is a song, and a song contains, this song contains both true truth, this is how Jesus came into the world, who he was and what he did, true truth, and also the ring of truth in these verses. Let me take this uh, longing for beauty, that we, that we know we want beauty. Let me take this as a ring of truth example and, and tell you why I'm, I'm going at this angle with Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a beautiful passage on the ugliest reality that Jesus faced. You see that, don't you? That he would suffer the, the absolute scorn and rejection of his own people, be killed by them in concert with Romans, meaning the involvement of Gentiles, us. But it wasn't victimization. Remember verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Doesn't verse 10 say that? Or uh, you look back up at verse 4. Last part of verse 4. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Or look down at verse 6, into verse 6. The Lord has laid on him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Ah, but there's the beauty. It's heinous. Crucifixion. The means of his getting all our sin put on him. But the act of his taking it for us. There's beauty in that. Now, why do I speak of Jesus' beauty when the text says, at the end of verse 2, he had no beauty that we should desire him? I speak of beauty here because the thing about beauty, and by beauty I don't mean glamour. We confuse beauty and glamour, but they're two different things. Glamour is what you see on the magazines, in the shelf. In fact, there's even one called glamour. How many of you have a prescription? Don't raise your hands. Subscription. Prescription. I need a prescription. Uh, Beauty is, uh, the reason we long for this, just taking this as an example, the reason we long for beauty and know it is there to to be beheld is because beauty, when we see it, it gives us a glimpse of how we know the world is supposed to be. When we get a glimpse of beauty, when we see poetry in motion, when we see an agile athlete doing exactly what, what you, you wish your body could do in the, same, in the same situation, but you see his or hers do it, or when you behold just the right colors, or you're, you're, you're at a, a, a scene outdoors and it's just, it's just perfect, there's, there's something in that that draws us, and we're drawn to beauty. We know that we are. Isaiah 53 describes what should not have been, the ugly treatment of God in flesh. God in flesh carrying our griefs and sorrows, paying our sin debt. That's not beautiful, but actually it is. And we recognize this. And the reason we do is because we realize that beauty gives us a glimpse into the world as it should be. And if that's true, if beauty, when we behold it, is giving us a glimpse into the way the world should be, then shouldn't we expect to find the creator of the world reconciling 
creation to himself at whatever cost that requires of him if, in fact, he cares about what he made. And the answer is, absolutely, we should expect that. And we know verse 2 when it says he had no beauty that we should desire. We, we know that means Jesus was an ordinary Jew by appearance. He didn't flaunt who he was. In fact, Philippians 2, Paul says he carried himself humbly. He made himself, took the form of a servant after the Isaiah passages. Humility is, is about a right use of power. And Jesus had unlimited power being God, but he used his power to, to serve at his first coming. At his second coming, his power is seen by all. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But isn't it exactly what we would expect, what follows in, in this passage, all the suffering followed by the resurrection anticipation at the end of Isaiah 53, isn't that exactly what you would expect a good God who wants his creation back to do? There's a famous line from a, a Russian novelist named uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky. You probably heard Dostoevsky, probably had to read him at some point in your education. He wrote a novel called The Idiot. And his line, his famous line from that novel is, Beauty will save the world. Beauty will save the world. But you have to ask, what kind of beauty? What kind of beauty did Dostoevsky, a Christian, have in mind? It was beauty that is self-sacrificing. Not just beauty itself, certainly not the glamour kind of beauty or even the poetry in motion beauty or, or, or a still thing that's just perfect the way it is. The beauty that is self-sacrificing redeems the world. A couple years ago or so, I'm not exactly remember when this uh, was, but everybody's got their shows, you know, and I followed one for a few seasons, a program that told the story of a man sentenced to death row for a crime he didn't commit. It was a very hard story at times to, to watch. man was eventually released, and much of the story was about his reacclimation to life, going back to his family after spending two decades in um, prison. Prison life had broken him deeply. He had experienced the very worst of prison culture, and on top of all that, knew that he was innocent. It hardened him. It made him cynical for a long time. And in one scene, the prison chaplain is seated outside the big steel door there on death row, this man's cell, the little slot where the food tray go back, goes back and forth was open. And, and on the ledge of it, the chaplain places a tape recorder. And he asks our, our man on the inside, how long has it been since you've heard music? And he presses play. And as that music begins to fill the cell, the chaplain quotes Dostoevsky. Beauty will redeem the world. Our man inside the cell is lying on his cot. He's disinterested. And in a low voice, he says to the chaplain, you're a fool. He doesn't want the music, but then he does. He wants to be left alone, but he doesn't want to be left alone. And, and then we see slowly outside the slot a hand 
And the prisoner puts his hand on the tape recorder. He doesn't just hear the music, he wants to feel the music. And the camera takes us through the slot and there's tears flooding down his face with his eyes closed as he's getting this experience. It's a powerful scene, it's deeply moving, it's deeply beautiful. And in context of this, what, we, what we're emphasizing today in Easter Sunday, even with true truth, the reality of the resurrection, that solid historical basis for believing what we do about Jesus' resurrection, still we're thought to be idiots and fools for believing in the bodily resurrection of anyone. Why do we? This music, this servant song, the true truth and the ring of truth that draws us that our redemption had to happen this way, including the ripping and the writhing on Calvary's hill. No beauty that we should desire Him, no. Particularly when, as the end of chapter 52 puts it there in verse 14 and 52, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and His form beyond that of the children of mankind. But the beauty coming from His actions has caused us to never stop desiring Him. Let me emphasize a pair of things from this text. It's Easter Sunday. I usually just give our congregation two things to think about, but today I'm going to give you a pair of two things to talk about because it's Easter Sunday. I want to take uh, the two verses here, just lift them out ever so briefly, that have question marks in them. That's verse 1 and verse 8 in Isaiah 53. We'll look at these two. Two verses here with question marks. And then I want to conclude with how Jesus bore not just our sins, but also our sorrows, which it says there in verse 4, he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Two pairs of considerations. First, these two questions. Two verses with questions. There's actually three questions. Look at verse 1. Who has believed what he heard from us? This first question. The gospel of a self-sacrificing God is almost unbelievable. And yet it has the ring of truth in that it answers our deepest longings. That if we've marred the beauty of all God has done, not just physical creation beauty, but His design purposes for the way relationships are to work, etc. and so on. If we've indeed vandalized all that, as Scripture says we have... And if he's only obligated to hold us liable for that and punish us, and yet we hear that he's forgiving, might he extend his forgiveness to us? Might he reconcile us to himself at his own expense? Do we dare hope that he would? After all, we've, after, after all the good he's done us in return, we've just given him our sin. Yes, we dare. We can so dare to hope for this because, look at the second question in verse 1. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The first question is like, isn't this unbelievable? And then the second question is, and yet you know it. You know this has happened. Somebody pointed out to me years ago that creation is said to be the work of God's finger. But salvation is the work of His arm. And I love the imagery of that. 
Look at it, verse 1. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, the saving action of God, the redemptive work of God. That's what's pictured by his arm. And it's been revealed to you and me right here and now. This summer, when I stand atop a Colorado mountain on vacation and take in all that beauty around me, I really should go every two weeks, frankly. It's about every two years. It does something for me. Uh, it just does. I get in those mountains, and I'm just a different guy. Uh, very chill, as most people are, without the marijuana uh, there. Um, but just at peace. Um, when I get on top of that mountain this summer and take in all that beauty around me, I'm looking at what the finger of God carved out for my enjoyment. And I feel appropriately small. And I love that feeling. But if I open my Bible up there, if in my backpack I take a Bible with me and I open Isaiah 53, turn to this very passage and read it, I'm looking at what God plunged his arm into the world for. What he rolled up his sleeves for, if you will. And that is to reveal to you and to me that although we are small, the God of the universe takes thought for us and has done something about our central problem before him. God revealed himself to us as our savior when all he had to be was our judge. Second verse in this song that poses a question is verse 8. And verse 8 reads awkwardly in English because it's long. It's a long question. But the question out of verse 8 is, who knew what was really happening when Jesus was being condemned? The most important event in the seen and unseen universe was taking place when Jesus was led to the cross. But no one understood how important it really was. And people still don't, even in the church. Those of us who've been in the know on this for so long. As one of my favorite writers put it, those of us who run to the tomb every Easter, see that it's empty, and then run home like the disciples of old did and lock our doors for fear of the world. We go to lunch. Do we really understand as we go on today and this week and beyond the beauty of what we've been invited into, how this answers the deepest uh, desires that we have. Do you know what you have in this servant? One who did not just bear our sins. That would be enough. That would be more than enough. The text says he also carried our sorrows. This is, this is a bonus for us, I think. There's two great truths in Isaiah 53 in tandem. This is the second set of considerations, and then we're done. Two great truths in tandem here in Isaiah 53. He bore our sins. The passage is always talking about this. And in verse 4, you get this emphasis on he, he bore our sorrows also, our griefs. Sins are what separate me from God. Uh, sorrows are what make me wonder if God has separated himself from me. Sorrows are, are what make me wonder if, if God has forgotten me. Sorrows are what make me wonder if, if God is maybe punishing me because this or that in my life is upside down now. This or that is hard. Something is causing me grief and suffering. 
You know, Easter Sunday is not the time to Americanize the resurrection of Christ. You know how that gets done. Guys go into pulpits and talk about how God's going to resurrect your broken dreams. God's going to resurrect your your disappointments. I I will let guys with much whiter teeth than mine uh, tell you about that. And they mean well, I think, to give them benefit of the doubt. But it's the gospel of a God who, who just empathizes. It's just the great empathizer in the sky. And you're not helped by that. I don't need a God who just empathizes with my sufferings. I need a God, and this is the God I get in Jesus, who walks into them. It's nothing you face that I haven't faced. God doesn't just mean well. The prophecy was that God would would bear well, carry, shoulder our sorrows as well as our sins personally. And hey, I know I have sins. I squared with that fact a long time ago. I'm sinful through and through. That doesn't mean I don't have any moral discipline. Squaring with the fact of our sinfulness doesn't give us excuse to go on sinning. The gospel teaches us to say no to our unruly passions and our disordered loves, etc. But I know I'm sinful. I, I know I'm a fool. You can ask Lynn. She'll tell you truly. But I've, I've realized now that I've entered my 50s, it takes some life experience by the way, it's either these shoes in my 50s or a ponytail. You get to pick. All right? I'm guessing you'd rather have the shoes. I am in midlife crisis. So you don't want me looking like I'm, uh, you know, got the ponytail. I can't rock that. I wish I could, but it's too thin on top. And then it looks like you're trying to rock it, and that's not good. So it's going to be the shoes. It takes some life experience to realize that I've known a long time my sins can take me down. What I've only in the last few years learned is that my sorrows can swallow me whole. My sins give me a lot of problems. They do. But my sorrows can take me out. See, when I was a young Christian, fervent, I thought a lot about my sins, the guys I would be in discipleship groups with, you know, we do, which feel, you know, like, can we just look back on it, you know, you put money in the jar when you did this, or you do push-ups when you did that, and we're trying to beat our sins, and we're trying to, you know, keep out of the way of them and develop better self-control. It's all about conquering my sin. And, and it's, gosh, it's still important. We, we have to fight the good fight the, our whole lives. Sin's always a problem until we breathe our last. But as I get older, I, I find I keep company more with my sorrows. And some of my sins are the source of some of my sorrows, but other sorrows are from other sins. Other sorrows are just from fallen world stuff, what other people are doing that I don't even know as well as those I do. And I realize now with life experience that sorrows are what can swallow me whole. 
Because sorrows can make you cynical. Cynicism is unresolved discouragement. If you're cynical, it's because you've, you've had a disappointment, a discouragement that's unresolved. And, and that swallows you, or despair swallows you, or, or hatred of people. You get into something that you don't want to have to deal with, and you just, you just, you just I hate people. I don't want to deal with people. From a sorrow perspective, and it's not, I don't want you to think I'm sorrowful all the time. I haven't done the Post Malone tats yet, always tired, you know. I had not done that. Um, but from a sorrow perspective, considering that because that's here, the most impressive thing about the resurrection of Jesus, from a sorrow perspective, the most impressive thing about the resurrection of Jesus is he rose from the dead, he died for us, to keep on with us. <laughs> because the the payment for sin he made was a once-for-all-time payment. But the carrying our sorrows he does, ongoing. Because he still meets sinners in our sufferings. He's still bearing our sorrows because we continue on in a fallen, groaning world. I love that Andrew Peterson song that we sang. It's a, it's a fantastic song. I, I love the question, is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. We've got to hold both together. In the world, you will have trouble, Jesus said, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Do you believe that? Beauty will redeem the world. Not glamour beauty or beauty itself in a still shot. But the beauty incarnate that is a self-sacrificing God who came to serve us by paying for our sins but also providing for our sorrows His constant care so that neither swallow us up, so that nothing separates us from His love and so that a tomb would be vacated one Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. And that would change everything. Would you pray with me? If not for an empty tomb, the scriptures are right, Lord. We should be pitied because we have an empty hope. We have nothing to cast ourselves upon. And we've talked about, Lord, today, sin and suffering. And those are hard things, shameful things. But even on our, our best days, when everything is bright and great and all is right with the world, and we know it isn't, but even on those days where we, for a moment, allow ourselves to think it is, the resurrection impacts those times too. Because if, if on our best day that's the best it can get, how much better is it in a resurrected body? Lord, keep us from thinking this is the exciting place. The exciting place is ahead. We're in the far country. But you don't leave us there. Thank you for showing us the way home. Thank you for coming and personally showing us the way home. And then walking out of that tomb so that you would overrule our sinfulness and you would enter into our sufferings as our God ongoing. You paid for our sins in a once for all sacrifice and you continue to bear our sorrows. We continue to cast our cares upon you. 
We thank you that it's that way. If you were not alive and well, we couldn't do that. It would be empty. But we thank you that we can because of who you are and because of what you've done. We thank you for this day of worship, this opportunity that's been ours to come together this morning in this place. We thank you for sister churches all around this city and country and world. We pray for Sri Lankan Christians who are suffering today as they've been uh, hit with attacks on churches on Easter Sunday. Lord, we, within a few degrees, our church will know Christians that are involved in that today. And we pray for our brothers and sisters there. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for promising us. Creation will eventually be made new when you reign. And we look forward to that. In Jesus' name.